Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Rampling, the author of The Experimental Fire, Inventing English Alchemy, a 400-year history of the development of alchemy in England that brings to light the evolution of the practice. Tracing the development of alchemy in England from the beginning of the 14th century to the end of 17th, Jennifer Rampling illuminates the role of alchemical reading and experimental practice in the broader context of national and scientific history. Using new manuscript sources, she shows how practitioners like George Ripley, John Dee, and Edward Kelly, as well as many previously unknown alchemists, devised new practical approaches to alchemy while seeking the support of English monarchs. By reconstructing their alchemical ideas, practices, and disputes, Rampling reveals how English alchemy was continually reinvented over the space of four centuries resulting in changes to the science itself. In so doing, the experimental fire bridges the intellectual history of chemistry and the wider worlds of early modern patronage, medicine, and science. So it's my pleasure to welcome Jennifer to the show. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Excellent. So I would like to start uh, by asking Um, as we're living through these unprecedented times during the pandemic. How has the pandemic influenced you and your work? Well, the pandemic, uh, of course, has affected everybody. Um, Simply in terms of work, uh, the main effect has been on my attention. I think like a lot of people, I've just found it very hard to concentrate on academic work uh, when so much else has been happening in the world. Um, So I think, you know, my, my main takeaway from the experience is people shouldn't feel too badly if they can't concentrate. They shouldn't blame themselves for you know, having all of this free time on their hands and yet not being able to produce high quality work. You know, this is a stressful time and it's, it's hard to produce great quality um, when you're under stress. Um, that said, I've tried to use it for various um, tasks like referencing, looking things up in dictionaries, you know, the kind of uh, standardized task that you can, uh, you can handle. Uh, even in stressful circumstances. I'm just so grateful that I'd already finished the book by the time this happened. So the book actually went into press in 2019. Um, So at least I didn't have to worry about trying to do real analytical and creative work uh, on that during the pandemic. Uh, I was able to concentrate on more standardized tasks like doing the proofreading and checking my references. Do you do teaching during this time? Absolutely, yes. Um, So As with most uh, American institutions, we switched online uh, in March 2020, uh, which, of course, was a big step for everybody, students and instructors. Um, Fortunately, uh, I was teaching um, that the class I was teaching uh, was quite a decent size, so I could actually see everybody on the Zoom screen. And I think the fact that the class, everyone could see one another was really helpful in that transition. So we could kind of pretend that we were face-to-face, even if um, we sadly were uh, separated on different continents. It's really great to hear that you uh, adapted uh, well to this really trying time. 
So what would be your advice for students, perhaps, on how to cope with the stress? You described already that the concentration can be altered. So what would be your main sort of takeaway or takeaways from this experience? Well, I'm very hesitant to give general advice because I think stress affects everybody differently. Uh, some people may actually find that it uh, releases some kind of energy that enables them to write, in which case that's fantastic. But if that doesn't happen, if you can't write, my own experience would just um, suggest that you shouldn't beat yourself up about it. You know, writer's block can strike even when we don't have stressful background circumstances. Um, so really, it's a case of doing what you can do. Uh, so for example, I did manage to write two book chapters last year uh, for an edited volume. And it was really difficult. Uh, the hardest thing was actually getting started uh, because I just found my motivation to start writing was pretty low. Once I started, once I managed to get a few good introductory paragraphs down, uh, I was able to build on that. But it felt like bricklaying. You just had to put down a foundation and then you know, add, add chunks, add paragraphs in a very mechanical way. Whereas um, in a more free-flowing situation, I would just, you know, I would write and you know, it wouldn't take quite as much concentrated effort. Excellent. So getting started is the hardest part and then Zigar can kick in. <laughs> so can you tell us more about yourself? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I'm a historian of alchemy. I was not always a historian of alchemy. Um, my career would have been very different if when I was 18, I knew that the history of science existed as a discipline because my two great interests were history and science. Uh, but I didn't know it existed. So instead, I went to university and read law. Uh, but I didn't become a lawyer. I, I spent 10 years uh, outside the academy working in various um, jobs, which you know, in retrospect, I didn't find very interesting. Um, and really, it wasn't until I started reading about alchemy that I found a subject I wanted to focus on for research. So I actually did a part-time master's degree in Renaissance studies uh, at Birkbeck. And I just want to give a shout out here for part-time degrees. Uh, so I was working full-time. Um, I didn't know at that point I'd be able to just give up my job and do a PhD. Uh, but taking that master's degree uh, and learning more about alchemy and actually getting my hands on some alchemical manuscripts, that was a turning point for me. Um, that made me realize that I wanted to study this material and I wanted answers to the questions that I couldn't find in the secondary literature that already existed. Um, and so I applied for a PhD program at Cambridge uh, in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science and started my PhD on the alchemy of George Ripley, who is a character I talk about in the book. So you were really following your passion, were you, when you started uh, this project? Yes, and I, I really do think that's the only way you can start a PhD. If you're not interested in your subject at the start of the PhD, you're going to be so sick of it after three years, if you even make it three years. Interesting. And do you have any other uh, advice for our early career researchers uh, with regards to perhaps the, the part-time degrees or following different uh, career trajectories? Well, I usually, I mean, I usually tell my own students uh, that they shouldn't take me as a model because I had a rather idiosyncratic career and it's something that would be you know, difficult to replicate. At the end of the day, everybody has to have their own journey. Um, what mattered to me was that I found a subject I was really passionately interested in. Uh, and also, I think working for 10 years outside the academy was quite healthy for me. So I had a good work ethic. 
I had to because, you know, I was used to commuting into work every day. I had to be there at nine or more usually at eight, which meant when I started a PhD, I just naturally kept that same work schedule going. I'd be up early in the morning and then I'd, you know, I'd work all day on it. And you know, because I was quite excited early on, I'd usually just work all day. Um, I think maybe I'd have had a different work pattern if I'd gone straight through from university, but it's, it's hard to say. I'd have, been, I'd have been younger, so I'd have been a different person. So I think, you know, my main advice to early career scholars is just make sure that you really are in love with your subject, that you've chosen something that you find genuinely very intellectually stimulating, and then make sure that whatever your outputs are on that project, let them be the highest quality possible. So don't publish things just for the sake of getting a publication, because that will come back to haunt you later. Make sure that you're always publishing the best of yourself so that when you need to showcase yourself, for instance, on the job market, which is a whole horror story in itself, at least you only have products out there that you're really proud of and you can get behind. Oh, that's a really great advice. Absolutely. Um, and what in terms of mentorship, do you have any mentors that were really notable during your uh, journey? Well, I'm incredibly lucky because the field that I work in, um, history of alchemy, is quite close. So most of the scholars know one another. So in a way, there's a, there's a huge sort of informal mentorship. So for instance, um, some of the leading scholars when I was taking my PhD, people like uh, Lawrence Principe at Johns Hopkins University or William Newman at Indiana Bloomington, uh, were actually quite approachable. I could talk to them at conferences, chat about the work. Everybody's just interested in the subject matter. So in a way, having those, you know, those sort of friends and colleagues made an enormous difference to me. But I also, of course, had more specific mentors. So um, when I was at Birkbeck, uh, I had the great good fortune to um, uh, work with two of the scholars there, Peter Forshaw, who's now at the University of Amsterdam, and Stephen Klukas, who was uh, the course director of the Renaissance Studies program um, and is still at Birkbeck. And it was really their advice that uh, sort of urged me on to apply for, for the PhD program at Cambridge. And the reason they suggested Cambridge was um, uh, the department of HPS there actually had a specialist in alchemy, Lauren Cassell, uh, who had published a book on Simon Foreman, uh, this Elizabethan um, astrologer who also had alchemical interests and was interested in much else besides. Uh, and so Lauren uh, agreed to take me on as a student. Um, I mean, many, many, many more mentors over the years. And I would just direct you to the very long acknowledgement section in my book where I try to list everybody um, who, who supported me. Excellent. It's really good to hear that uh, mentors and uh, people who are around are really important to have this support yes, in your project. Excellent. All right. So let's jump right into the magical world of alchemy. So right from the beginning, can you just describe to us what is alchemy and why it captivated you so much? Oh, thank you. Well, alchemy is interesting. When you hear the word alchemy, often some kind of mental image will pop up. Uh, so, for example, um, many of the people I've spoken to about my work, their first experience of alchemy was reading a Harry Potter book or, uh, or a manga like uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Um, or they'll have a sense that alchemy is about transmuting gold or it's about immortal life. Um, the fact is, alchemy is rather hard to pin down. Uh, and the easiest gen generalization, I think, would be to say it's about perfecting stuff. So it's about making imperfect things perfect. Now, that could be 
turning a base metal like lead into gold or silver. You're perfecting the metal. But it could also be medicinal. So it could be turning a sick body into a healthy body. And actually, that ended up being one of the main themes of my book. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of literature now, very good literature on the history of alchemy, uh, which typically tends to focus in on one particular end of alchemy. So, for example, there were very good books about the theory of matter that underpins transmutation. So that's very much focused on making gold. But there's also a large volume of literature about chemical philosophy, about alchemical medicine, if you like, using chemical substances and putting them through alchemical processes to make elixirs or remedies that are going to prolong your life or heal sickness. And what I found reading the primary sources was that actually a lot of English alchemists, especially during the 15th and 16th centuries, saw alchemy as a multi-purpose practice. So they wanted to make gold, but they also wanted to heal bodies and they also wanted to make jewels and they wanted to do lots of other things as well. So what they tried to do was bundle all of these different uh, activities into one overarching practice. Um, and that's something I explore in the book. So in a way, my answer to the question, what is alchemy, is different. Um, you know, it, the, my answer is not the same as it would have been if you'd asked me at the start of the PhD, um, because it kind of came out of the research itself. Uh, and that's partly what, what captured my attention. I mean, I can tell you more exactly what captured my attention. I was yes, sure. I, I was working in my day job, and you know, I wasn't really incredibly interested in the day job, if I'm honest. Um, so mm -hmm. I was, you know, browsing other subjects, just trying to find topics of interest, and I came across alchemy. Uh, in fact, it's a website, and this is back in 1999, so the web looked very different then to how it looks today. Uh, but the website's still there. It's called the Alchemy website, and it's run by a guy called Adam McLean, who's not an academic, but he does know a lot about alchemy. And he'd put a bunch of transcriptions of alchemical texts, all in English, on the web. So these are not scholarly editions. Many of them have been transcribed from uh, manuscripts or printed books and just kind of put up there in plain text. And so I was reading these alchemical writings with great interest and fascination. And the very first one I read was called The Twelve Gates. And it's a poem. It's an alchemical poem written in English by this 15th century Augustinian canon called George Ripley. And the, the longer name for the poem is it's actually called The Compound of Alchemy. Uh, but it was put up there as The Twelve Gates. And that's because the central organizing conceit of the poem is it's in 12 chapters, 12 parts, each one of which is a gate. And the idea is that the alchemical novice has to conquer each one of the gates in order to get to the center of the castle where he will attain knowledge of the Philosopher's Stone and the secrets of alchemy. And each one of these gates is a chemical process. So the first one is calcination. Then you have dissolution, separation. And the alchemist has to master each one of these practices in order to um, gain the Philosopher's Stone. Now, I just thought that was a fantastic uh, conceit uh, for the poem. But when I started actually reading the poem, I couldn't make sense of it. It clearly had some kind of internal logic. So it meant something to the writer. But as an outsider, I had no idea what that actually was. And if you've ever read any alchemical poetry, you will know exactly what I mean, because it's written in this very allegorical, ob obtuse style, which is actually intended to hide its meaning. And Ripley himself warns you in the poem that if you don't, you know, if you're not a philosopher, if you don't understand the deeper meaning, then you'll never get any further in the craft. 
Uh, and so, and this is long before I started my PhD, but I really remembered the, that, that tension between the internal logic of the poem and the fact that it was so kind of locked to outsiders, just like a locked gate. Um, and so I ended up doing my PhD on George Ripley. And after the PhD, I felt I finally understood what some of those gates meant, even if I haven't discovered the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, and you raise a very important point that to understand something, of course, you have to spend a lot of time studying it, but you also have to have, uh, to enter the mindset, perhaps, of yeah. the people of that of that day. So could you set set us the scene of what the life was like or um, surroundings were at that time and what were people thinking where all this uh, was happening uh, sort of on the top of uh, alchemical uh, era. Thank you. Um, so the book covers quite a long chronological period, um, 1300 to 1700. Um, and maybe I should just back, back up a little bit and I'll, I'll get back to your, your, your point about society. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of alchemy in medieval and early modern Europe. And if you want to understand what's happening, you just can't try and study everything at once. So I focused on England in order to narrow down that focus. But then equally, if you just look at one moment in time, you're not really going to capture where those alchemical ideas and practices came from or how they changed. So by narrowing in on the geography, but then extending the time period, um, I hoped I would be able to follow some alchemical ideas over time and see what kind of thinking went into um, actually uh, carrying out alchemy for the for the practitioners concerned. Um, so to go back to your question, that means that there isn't just one uh, single milieu in which these um, in which alchemy is being studied. Uh, we've got 400 years of English history. And of course, that period saw a lot of change. So in the 14th century, you have the arrival of the plague, the Black Death, um, something that was much, much worse than COVID, uh, but which might still cause us a pang of sympathy today. Um, at the end of the, uh, the 15th century, there's a lot of um, political turmoil uh, with the, the conflict that's now known as the Wars of the Roses. So you have regime change uh, with the Tudor dynasty coming in. And then in the 1530s and 40s, there's an enormous social, confessional, um, cultural upheaval with the English Reformation. Uh, and then, of course, plenty more happens by the end of the 17th century as well. But one thing I noticed when I was researching the book, and this, you know, this sounds so obvious now, it wasn't quite as obvious when I started, was that these enormous shifts in English society are going to affect how alchemy's done. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. George Ripley's a canon. He was based in a monastery uh, in East Yorkshire, um, in, at Bridlington, at Bridlington Priory, although he seems to have left his, um, uh, his priory uh, and uh, and, and had permission to actually work outside the cloister. But we're still talking about a religious setting. And actually, a lot of the um, alchemical texts that survive from the late Middle Ages were written by um, monks, friars, and canons, people who had some kind of religious institution where they were based. And those institutions weren't just important uh, because they contained alchemists. They also uh, provided resources of patronage which meant that if you were an alchemist, not a religious alchemist, but you know, let's say a trader or a craftsman, and you wanted to do alchemy and you wanted somebody to fund your practice, well, you could apply to the king or you could try to find um, a noble 
patron, or you could go to a monastery and try to persuade um, the head of the house to sponsor your alchemical practice. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, monasteries are also sites of libraries, of course. So you have this great accumulation of literature. In fact, some monks say that they first found out about alchemy reading books and then they go out to try and find a practitioner who can teach them. The point is that monasteries are really important for the development of English alchemy. So what happens when all of the monasteries just disappear within the space of a couple of years? Um, and that's a question I didn't ask during my PhD, but I had to ask it when I was writing the book. Uh, because you can't try to trace ideas over 400 years without noticing that there's this gigantic chasm um, in the middle of that period. So to answer your original question, the circumstances in which people did alchemy, you know, where it fitted in their daily lives, it actually changed a lot because there were fewer options after the Reformation. But something really interesting starts happening already uh, in the 15th century, so long before the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, we start seeing a lot of interest in alchemy among secular practitioners. Now, that could be secular clergy, so priests who aren't based in monasteries. It could be among craftspeople. Uh, it could even be at the royal court. So, for instance, um, several English kings during the 15th century uh, famously were very interested in alchemy and actually sponsored it. They issued licenses. For alchemical practice. So alchemy's already moved outside the cloister, well outside the cloister by the 15th century. And of course, that keeps going even after the Reformation. It's just supplemented by this influx of practitioners who had previously been based um, in monasteries. So how might you actually go about doing alchemy? Um, you would probably come to alchemy from either a the point of view of reading or the point of view of practices. I'll tell you what I mean. Um, there are lots of alchemical texts which are written in a kind of philosophical style. So they address the reader as though the writer is a philosopher and the reader can only understand what's being said if the reader also has the capacity to be a philosopher. So in other words, this knowledge is not being communicated like craft knowledge. It's being presented as a kind of learned discipline that's passed down from master to disciple. So in order to understand the practices, which are heavily encoded, you first of all have to learn how to think and read and speak like a philosopher. And a lot of English alchemical texts pick up this theme. They tell you how to basically perform being a philosopher. So that's one way in which you might access alchemy, this philosophical route. But you might simply learn about alchemy because... You know, you know, you know somebody who's practicing alchemy and so you start learning practices or maybe you already work in a, um, a craft that has some kind of chemical, that requires some kind of chemical knowledge. So, for example, you might be a goldsmith or you might be involved in dyeing and then you hear about alchemy and you think about how your own techniques could, um, could square with that. And what I think happened quite a lot is that there'd be some kind of mixture of the two. So somebody who already has chemical knowledge will come across our chemical texts and think, hey, I could be a philosopher too. Or somebody who comes to the texts mainly as a reader starts to think, I wonder what would happen if I tried that in practice. Things get really interesting when those two groups of people come together. So there's an example that I give in the book. Um, uh, in fact, there are a couple, couple of similar examples where you have collaborations between members of monasteries and people outside. Uh, so in the uh, 
probably the late 1520s, you have the prior of Little Lees, which is um, an Augustinian monastery uh, in Essex in England. Uh, his name's Thomas Ellis. He reads about alchemy in books. He's interested. He decides he wants to learn how to practice alchemy, but of course he can't learn how to do that in the monastery. Um, and so he gets in contact with a goldsmith in London, and the goldsmith uh, sort of puts him in touch with his network. So he introduces him to a priest called Sir George, who knows about alchemy. And then this priest introduces the prior to a practicing alchemist called Master Thomas Peter. And then Sir George and Thomas Peter train Thomas Ellis de Prior in alchemy, which means that they come from London to Essex into the monastery and they help the Prior set up his alchemical practice actually in the monastery. And of course, you know, things go badly wrong. Uh, the alchemy doesn't work. Ellis gets disillusioned. He, you know, he tries to break the deal. The alchemists sue him for money they say he owes them. It, you know, it all goes horribly wrong. And the only reason we really know about the story is because the court records survive. Um, but the point is that here we don't have alchemy restricted to either a religious setting or a city setting. This collaboration, and, and in the book I call this the mixed economy, um, and it's something that seemed to produce you know, a lot of very rich uh, thinking, a lot of very rich practice in England, and that completely disappeared with the Reformation. Were there, were there also casual alchemists? So can you do it in your spare time, perhaps, during that period? Or did you have to be alchemist full-time? It's a great question. I think nearly everybody was doing this in, you know, what, for want of a better term, we, we will call their spare time. Uh, in other words, they had day jobs. Now, you do get some cases, um, for instance, later in the 16th century, and mainly not in England, but on the continent. So, for example, in the German lands, where princes who were interested in alchemy might actually hire an alchemist full-time to work in their laboratories, usually under a contract. Um, and this is this work has uh, received uh, attention from scholars like Tara Numadol and Pamela Smith and, and Bruce Moran. But in England, there's very little evidence for that, which is interesting because a lot of alchemists or would-be alchemists loved the idea of being paid to just do alchemy full-time. So you get all of these patronage suits written to Elizabeth I from would-be adepts who want her to appoint them as an alchemist and actually fund their practice. But that never actually happens in, in practice. Or, or rather, it happens once, but the guy Elizabeth hires is not uh, an Englishman. Uh, he's from abroad, which I think maybe annoyed some of her English petitioners. So mm. how could you do alchemy if, you, if you're not getting paid to do it full time? Well, many alchemists were clerics, as I've mentioned. Um, many were physicians or had, or if they weren't formally physicians, they were irregular medical practitioners. So there's this guy called Thomas Charnock, for instance, who seems to have been a very dedicated, almost obsessive alchemist. Um, but that wasn't how he made his money. Uh, he seems to have practiced medicine um, despite not having a license to do so. Um, we get little hints in his manuscripts that give us an insight into his medical knowledge. Um, so people who were doing alchemy were usually doing something else. And this was a problem for them because alchemy is really expensive. Uh, some of the practices take nine months to complete, which means that you have to find a way. And this would be quite a challenging technical accomplishment even today. You have to find a way of maintaining a constant steady heat in your furnace for up to nine months 
And of course, this is before thermometers, it's before thermostats. You just have to really know how to maintain a furnace and how to design equipment so that it will maintain a steady heat. Uh, and that means that you're going to need a lot of fuel as well, which could be quite expensive. Um, so just logistically, uh, alchemy would put a lot of strain on a household, even if you were working on it full time, which most people we know could not afford to do. Um, so there's this guy um, who I talk about in the book uh, called Richard Walton, and he's a haberdasher by trade. He has a shop on the old Change, which was the street that was next to St. Paul's Cathedral in London before the cathedral burned down in the Great Fire. Um, and Walton writes to Elizabeth I, and actually we, we, we didn't know about this before. Um, this is um, uh, a petition that just came to light through uh, one of the manuscripts I was looking at in, in my research. Um, Walton writes to the Queen asking if she'll basically part fund his work because he says the work's so costly that he just can't carry it out any longer, um, especially because of the times of trouble. Now, he doesn't say what the times of trouble were, but he's clearly quite a devout Protestant. So it's possible that during the, the reign of uh, the Catholic Queen Mary, he, had, he ran into some difficulties. It also looks as though he lost um, many of his children, possibly during um, one of the periodic bouts of plague that afflict, afflicted London. So Walton writes to the Queen asking if she'll sponsor him about £100 so that he can carry on uh, with his work um, because it's a bit too expensive as a hobby. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, not, a, not a cheaper hobby, <laughs> not a cheaper no. labour. Um, are there any notable inventions that uh, were developed by alchemists that uh, we perhaps know about? So in a general sense, yes. Um, so it helps if you think that alchemy really is sort of the chemistry of the pre-modern world. So there's no distinction between alchemy and chemistry in the 16th century, or not in any strict sense. Um, there were plenty of chemical techniques that people are using, like making mineral acids, for instance, which wouldn't necessarily be employed for transmutation. You might use it in goldsmithing, for instance. Um, but, you know, alchemy could be used to an extent as a, a sort of umbrella term um, for different sorts of chemical activity. So, in a sense, everything, you know, all, all chemical developments could be said to have some sort of relationship to alchemy. Um, what I don't really do in the book, I, I try not to home in on inventions. And the reason is you can fall into a bit of a trap as a historian in trying to value past science only for what it, you know, eventually resulted in in the present day. And I'm not really interested in looking at alchemy as a kind of precursor of modern chemistry. I'm much more interested in looking at what alchemy meant to the people who were doing it in their own day. Uh, in fact, that was really the, the question that got me started, you know, way back before I did my PhD, when I was reading this poem of George Ripley, I wanted to know what did he think he was doing? So what was he doing? And what did he think he was doing? And there's a tension between those two questions, because um, what did alchemists think they were doing? Well, they probably thought they were making the Philosopher's Stone. What were they actually doing? Well, from a modern perspective, we wouldn't say they were making the Philosopher's Stone, because the ends of alchemy, as described in medieval texts, we would not accept as being scientifically possible today. So the question then is, what were they doing if they weren't actually succeeding in transmuting metals, or if they weren't actually managing to make uh, wonderful life-preserving elixirs? If they kept failing, or if they never quite got there, why did they keep going? 
why did they keep innovating? Why did they keep going back to these medieval texts and trying to make it work time and time again? Um, and that's a question I find absolutely fascinating because these were very intelligent people. Uh, you know, these are not naive idiots who were just getting taken in by some kind of uh, multi-generational con trick. Um, they really think that the ends of alchemy are possible. So I guess that's the question I was asking myself rather than um, just what, you know, what, what did they invent? What did they think they were inventing and what gave them such confidence? Yes, and, and this is uh, something that's really interesting um, in your book, that you sort of really flip uh, this perception and uh, uh, kind of don't think about the clear cut transitions in between uh, different concepts. So um, when you sort of transfor- uh, trans- transport yourself into the mind of uh, the alchemists of that day, so do you think that they already were having this scientific thinking and scientific rationale? Um, in the approaches? I I think it depends on the alchemist. Hmm. So what I don't I, I don't want to set up some kind of false equivalency between scientific practitioners in the 16th century and scientific practitioners today. Because the whole methodology of doing science, of course, is something that has a history, it's something that's developed. Now, was alchemy a rational pursuit? Yes, absolutely. Uh, why was it a rational pursuit? Because it made sense in terms of the science of the day. So if you're a follower of Aristotelian natural philosophy, then the idea that the elements can change into one another is simply intrinsic to your science. Um, so alchemical theory perhaps doesn't seem that that bizarre if that's your if that's your um, your scientific worldview to begin with. And also, if you look at the ways in which some of these practitioners actually follow alchemy, I would say yes, it's pretty rational. It's based on an understanding of natural philosophical principles, the science of the day as they understood it, but it's also based on practice and observation. Um, And actually, this is a point that's been made by a number of historians of alchemy recently. Um, Bill Newman is one who comes to mind, for instance. In some ways, the alchemists were more skilled observers, more careful empiricists um, than natural philosophers who reason solely from principles because they actually got a chance to feed back what they learned from their practice uh, into their chemical knowledge. So their, their knowledge of science, if you like, was informed by their understanding of, uh, of materials and, uh, how, and what happened to them as they underwent different, uh, different chemical procedures, um, which I, you know, I think that's pretty rational. Um, but at the same time, not all alchemists are the same. And I always try to go practitioner by practitioner. So you might have somebody, um, I mean, you know, let's take a classic example, right? Robert Boyle in the 17th century. Um, you know, Robert Boyle has sometimes been, I think, rather misleadingly described as the father of chemistry. I think you should always be suspicious if anybody's ever described as being the father of something. Um, mm. But, you know, as, as we well know, partly due to Principe's work, um, Boyle was very interested in alchemy as well. Now, who's going to tell Robert Boyle that he's not rational? And likewise, Isaac Newton, another uh, extremely famous scientist who was very interested in alchemy. Well, you do get figures at the other end of the scale who are a bit more idiosyncratic in their approach. Um, So every science has its cranks and alchemy was definitely no exception. Uh, And I would also say that every science uh, has its practitioners who are mainly interested in applications and in funding, in making a living out of the science, rather than necessarily pursuing knowledge for its own sake. And we also find plenty of those people in alchemy, too. 
Um, so going through the texts, you'll find texts which are written by people who clearly were fascinated by the nature of matter and the nature of change and who are pursuing that knowledge for its own sake. You find recipe books and, and practices which are written down by people who really want to make this stuff work in practice and then they want to be able to sell what they make, um, either sell the products or sell their expertise to patrons. And then you find texts which are really hard to categorize because they don't look like scientific texts by our standards. I'm thinking, for instance, of texts that have a very strong religious component or which have um, which interface with magical practices. And actually, I ended up writing a whole chapter in the book about this um, because magic and alchemy are not the same thing. Uh, they have different methods of operation, but they could often both be pursued by the same practitioner, which means that there's a blurring between them. So, for instance, there's this fascinating character called William Bloomfield, um, who is quite well known to readers of alchemical texts because uh, he wrote a very famous poem called Bloomfield's Blossoms or The Camp of Philosophy, which was published in the 17th century and has been uh, read a lot ever since. Um, but Bloomfield was also interested in magic and he was actually arrested and imprisoned as a conjurer. And <clears throat> some of the statements about him sound very strange. So, for instance, his servant uh, actually claimed that Bloomfield had tried to summon a spirit using a circle um, and that Bloomfield had warned his servant that this spirit, when it arrived, would destroy part of the house. Now, I don't know if that's something that Bloomfield said himself or if it's just something that his servant made up or misunderstood. But this clearly is, you know, it's a different world from the sort of methodical chemical experimentation that we might associate with somebody like Robert Boyle. Um, and I, I don't really want to judge. I think that these are all fascinating aspects of, of the same phenomenon, which is, you know, this this fascination with alchemy in early modern England. Um, and I want to know what people thought it was capable of doing, um, however they approached it. Um, so in your research, you went through the wealth of the primary sources, right? So there's still, you... there's still a lot more to read. There's so much material, honestly. <laughs> A hundred so lifetimes. Describe maybe. us, uh, perhaps. So, are they easy to understand and follow? And uh, how how was this research from the academic perspective? Um, well, I should just say to begin with that I absolutely love working with alchemical materials. It's just about my favourite thing. So, you're talking to someone who is very biased here. Um, I mean, I could just quite happily spend my life reading alchemical manuscripts. And actually that, to go back to the very first question you asked me, that's been the hardest thing about the pandemic, not being able to go into the archive and just look at alchemical manuscripts. Um, although I was very fortunate, I was able to get a few days in the British Library before, before Christmas, before everything shut down, looking at a few manuscripts. Um, so I would say the first time you read an alchemical text or the first time you examine an alchemical manuscript, just don't expect that you're going to know what's happening uh, because these texts are very obscure. They're often written to be difficult. Um, I mean, not necessarily. You might have a rest, I mean, recipe literature tends to be a bit more transparent. But the problem is with alchemy, even recipes, you can't always read them at face value. Hmm. Um, so the recipe might say, take a pound of vitriol, but it doesn't mean vitriol, which is to say a metal sulfate. It actually means something else, and it's using vitriol as a cover name uh, to disguise the philosopher's real intent. And now you can see straight away that there's going to be a problem. 
because let's say the writer of the recipe really did mean vitriol, but then let's say a later reader gets hold of that recipe. And this later reader has been has been reading lots of philosophical literature that tells him that, you know, the philosophers use strange names to hide their meaning. And whenever they say vitriol, they don't mean common vitriol, they actually mean philosophical mercury or some other important ingredient. So they're going to read this simple recipe and think, aha, this writer didn't mean vitriol, he actually meant you know, insert ingredient here, you know, whatever the um the readers kind of bringing to the text. Um, now, if he then follows that recipe, he's probably not going to use vitriol. He's going to use something else, which means that he's going to completely change the chemical underpinnings of that practice. But he's but he's not going to do so necessarily fraudulently. He may genuinely think that he is following the original intent of the of the author. This is what I call practical exegesis. This idea that. Um, a reader might accidentally feed back um, new knowledge into a text while believing that they are interpreting the text in line with the um, uh, the writer's uh, in presumed intention. So this is also a problem for modern scholars. If you're looking at a medieval manuscript that's talking about alchemy, you have to decide, can you interpret the terms used at face value? And sometimes the writer will help you out by actually telling you that you can't that he's deliberately obscuring his meaning and that only a true philosopher will understand. So, of course, that sends you a clue that you can't just you know, read vitriol as vitriol. But sometimes there isn't that kind of warning. So then you have to make a judgment call. So if you're starting out in the archive with these materials, you just have to be very, very careful at the start. And that's where my advice would be you read as widely as possible because you'll often notice that text produced around the same period of time, or maybe different times, but responding to the same authoritative text, so all trying to kind of interpret the same tradition, they'll often come up with a similar bunch of interpretations. And once you know what those interpretations are, you can read the text a bit more confidently because you know that there's a certain range of meanings that could apply. Um, so even if you might not, you, you might not know exactly what the text is referring to, you can make a much better informed guess. So alchemy, you know, it's like a kind of, you know, it's it's almost an ecology. It's not enough to just look at one tree in the forest. You, you need to look at how that tree interacts with every other living thing in the forest before you can uh, you can navigate a path through it. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, I've just got in front of me on my screen actually um, some alchemical poetry. Uh, so this is a poem that was attributed to George Ripley, and I'll just read you the first couple of lines. So take heavy, soft, cold and dry, cleanse him and to calks, grind him subtly, dissolve him in water of the wood, if thou can do any good. So this is a poem. It's not written as a recipe, so it's not meant to simply be a, you know, a straightforward recipe. But the language is, is somewhat that of a recipe. You know, take this. You know, it's like take a pound of flour, take heavy, soft, cold and dry. If you can't work out what is heavy, soft, cold and dry, then clearly you are not going to, um, as the poet says, do any good. I wonder if we can uh, write materials and methods in chemistry in a form of self-poetry. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because that, that's actually an exercise that I do with my students um, when I'm teaching really? this material. Yes, um, I, I ask everybody to bring to class a simple recipe. It could be a, a cooking recipe or it could be a chemical process. It doesn't matter. But they have to encode it. 
and then they share it with class and the rest of class has to try and work out what they're talking about. Um, and it's a fascinating exercise because once you've, once you've attempted that, both the process of encoding a recipe and the process of trying to decipher somebody else's encoded process, you then have a lot more empathy for what the alchemists were doing. Um, and in particular, you'll notice certain strategies that recur. Um, so, you know, substituting one name for another um, or, or sometimes using multiple words to refer to the same basic substance. Um, so it, it, it can actually be quite fun. Was the deciphering of these texts enigma-like? Did you need to have a key, perhaps, for each philosopher? I, 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 I tend to think that every, every alchemical philosopher um, does need to be treated on his own terms, or occasionally her own terms, but most of the, the guys I'm looking at are actually guys. Um, so, for instance, George Ripley became incredibly successful. Lots of people wrote commentaries on Ripley. But I can't assume that just because they were commenting on Ripley, they adopted the same procedure that he did, because they were doing exactly the same thing that I'm trying to do now, which is to say they're trying to bring their knowledge to bear on his obscure words in order to um, understand what he's meaning. So Ripley sort of says he's giving you the key in his poem. So in, in the compound of alchemy, um, he provides a diagram at the end, this wheel-shaped diagram, which he says is the key to his work. But it's not a transparent key. Um, you actually, uh, you know, you could interpret that key in many ways, too. So while I do believe that Ripley had a specific process in mind, and while I think that my own interpretation of it is, you know, a reasonably robust one, uh, I'm not positive I'm right, because I might just be the victim of exactly the same complacency that many of Ripley's earlier commentators uh, experienced when they thought they'd worked out his process, but unknown to them, they'd actually interpreted it um, as something different in light of their own knowledge. So would alchemists have their own trainees uh, to which they imparted their sort of mindset and approaches as well as alchemical methods? Yeah, it's an interesting question because according to the rhetoric of these philosophical treatises, yes, absolutely. Um, the master would have a disciple and he would pass down the knowledge, usually in a rather fragmentary way. So the poor disciple has to work quite hard to understand what his master is, is teaching him. Um, so it, that, that's sort of the rhetorical position. The question is, is that really how it worked? And I suspect it usually was not how it worked. Um, I think a lot of people first encountered alchemy in books, and they then went in search of somebody who could teach them some tricks. But I don't think it was you know, that that knowledge was necessarily transmitted in this, you know, this very sort of formal initiatory way that's described in the text. And you can see why. It's because the writers of the text, they want to make alchemy look like a branch of philosophy. They want to claim that alchemy is part of an ancient tradition. Uh, and ancient traditions, of course, get passed down over time. So the idea that you, you have to learn from a master and you have to spend many decades training um, actually supports the authority of alchemy as a science, as a branch of philosophy. It's something that's secret. It's something that's difficult. It's something that takes a lot of wisdom, uh, rather than just something that you could pick up by buying a recipe from some guy you met at the pub, which I suspect is how a lot of alchemy actually worked in practice. Um, so in your book, The Experimental Fire, you focus on alchemy in England. But how 
widespread, world widespread was it? So beyond the Europe? Well, there's a lot of alchemy outside Europe. Um, <clears throat> so, for instance, um, there's a very rich tradition um, that originates in China, uh, and that tradition also intersects with uh, an alchemical tradition in uh, the Indian subcontinent. Now, the challenge for historians of European alchemy is trying to work out whether that Asian tradition actually um, shares any kind of common common ground, any common roots, because it looks as though um, the East Asian tradition arose independently from the sort of uh, Greco-Roman and then Arabic tradition that gets translated um, into European languages. So I actually don't touch on the Chinese um, or Indian um, practices at all myself, partly because I'm, it's simply well beyond my expertise. I don't have those languages. And partly because there is no hard evidence of transmission. So what you have in the Western tradition is alchemical practices that develop in North Africa, in Egypt, um, which are originally transmitted in Greek, uh, which get translated into Arabic. Um, and then there's a very rich medieval uh, Arabic tradition of alchemy. Um, which is then enormously uh, influential once it's translated into Latin uh, during the 12th century, during the great Arabic translation movement. Now, it's entirely possible, even probable, uh, that during this golden age of Islamic alchemy, there would have been some influence from further east. The problem is there isn't a whole lot of evidence for it. And if you don't have text, if you don't have documents, it's hard to claim that there was, there was influence. So, to answer your question, yes, there's alchemy happening in other places, but it doesn't necessarily connect up to the kind of alchemy that I talk about in the book. On the other hand, there is a westward expansion. Um, so when uh, Europeans um, travel to and colonize the Americas, um, they take their scientific worldview with them and they take alchemy with them. So there's lots of evidence of alchemical practice um, in the Americas. Uh, and actually, I've been part of a project at Princeton uh, working with some of our graduate students uh, and with uh, Tony Grafton um, to look at alchemical books that were owned by members of one of America's founding families, the Winthrops, uh, because successive generations of the family seem to have been interested in alchemy. Uh, and John Winthrop Jr., um, uh, governor of the uh, you know, governor of Connecticut, um, he had a chemical medical practice. He, he had lots of alchemical books. He was fascinated by it. Uh, and of course, that alchemy is very much in the tradition that I've been describing. So it's a kind of offshoot of European alchemy rather than something that was, that was native to the Americas. Interesting. Yeah, it, it looks like it's a worldwide phenomenon. But, um, well, it's, still it's kind of fun. You know, yeah. wherever Europeans go, they seem to take their alchemy with them. Uh, I guess one of the, I, mean, I, I don't really make this claim overtly in the book, but you know, I, I do think that, you know, alchemy was quite an intrinsic part of English culture. And so where English people go, it's quite likely that they're thinking about alchemy is going to, to go with them. So from your perspective, how important was alchemy for the development of the modern science? I think that, um, I mean, as I said before, I don't really like to just see it as a kind of progressive narrative. Um, I think that, so I could almost give you two answers, which would be, incredibly important and kind of irrelevant. So the incredibly important line, um, if you think of alchemy as chemistry, if you think about the kinds of very sophisticated manipulations of matter that these alchemists are producing, because they must have been really good. 
you know, there are processes like the volatilization of gold, which take tremendous skill even today. And so to do it with the kind of apparatus that they had in the 15th, 16th centuries is extraordinary. So you have highly skilled chemical practitioners who are making, you know, extraordinarily refined products um, and who are also speculating about the nature of matter. So uh, it's been argued um, that a lot of the, the theories of matter in the 17th century, which eventually were further developed into the atomic theory, um, sort of stem out of alchemical thinking and stem out of experimental work done on chemical done on chemicals, which seem to point towards matter having a corpuscular structure rather than this sort of Aristotelian uh, structure of matter and form. So it's kind of hard to prize alchemical theory and practice away from a scientific tradition as something separate. Um, so in that sense, yeah, alchemy is incredibly important. But the reason I don't just want to reduce alchemy to a, a sort of stepping stone in the scientific revolution is that there's also a lot of things that alchemists did and thought and practiced that doesn't translate into an easy narrative about science. So, for example, that relationship between um, alchemy and magic or the fact that many uh, practitioners seem to view success in alchemy as being morally and religiously charged. So, Early English Protestants, you know, they believed that, you know, you couldn't, you, know, you couldn't attain divine grace by good works alone. You had to be elect. You know, God had to have given you favor directly. And how would you know if you were elect? Well, one one way that you might know would be if you were making good progress in alchemy. That might be a kind of sign of divine favor. So you have this inflection in some alchemical texts during times of religious crisis that suggests that the, the writers, you know, they think they're elect, they think they're good Protestants, and they think that that means they're going to succeed in alchemy. Now, how do you translate that moment into a narrative about the rise of science? It doesn't actually translate very well, but it's still, I think, absolutely fascinating because it tells us something about religious belief in the period, you know, an inflection on the history of religion, which we might not get if we didn't factor in alchemy, you know, if we just looked at, say, theological writings. Um, and I think there are other areas of cultural life as well where alchemy can tell us a great deal, but which wouldn't necessarily count as, you know, as science in a very in a strict or reductionist sense. That's a really interesting perspective, absolutely. So if you are living in your favorite medieval period, do you think that you would be an alchemist? Well, huh, that's a good question. Um, am I allowed to change my gender? Yeah, for sure. Alchemists can do <laughs> transmutations. Because you know, if, if I were living as a woman in any of my historical periods, um, it would have been much harder for me to practice alchemy. It would have been much harder for me to do lots of things, in fact, um, for, for obvious reasons. I couldn't have uh, been a professor at a university, for instance. Um, so, I mean, women, women did practice alchemy. Um, Especially so, during the 15th century, there's a lot of interest in distilled remedies and you know, making medicines by distillation, and this is something that men and women practiced. Um, so, if if I were a woman, my opportunities would have been limited. If I were a man living, well, the problem is um, I'd have to forget everything I know about where history is going. Right. So, for example, mm -hmm. if um, you know, if I were to go back to the late 15th century, which is my, my favorite historical period, um, I wouldn't necessarily want to be based in a monastery because I know what's going to happen in a few decades time. 
So I'd have to forget an awful lot. Uh, And also, and this is even more fundamental, I'd have to forget that I don't believe alchemy works. So how could I be Mm -hmm. an alchemist if I don't think it works? Um, I just think there were were too many contingencies for me to make a good call on this. Um, I think that we're very fortunate living in an age where even in times of pandemic and economic straightening, we can still make some choices about what we want to do with our lives. So we can decide, you know, if we want to work in an office or work out of doors. And I wouldn't necessarily have had those choices as either a man or a woman in the late 15th century, um, unless I had the good fortune to find a sponsor to send me to university, um, assuming I was a boy. Um, So would I have been an alchemist? I don't know. I like to think that with my preferences, I would have tried my very hardest to become a scholar uh, in some form, Uh, although scholarship uh, then would have required a very different set of skills um, and set of expectations. So perhaps alternative career choices in the 15th century England. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, you know, social mobility is so much more restricted then. Um, you, I mean, you could certainly have aspirations, but not necessarily. In fact, you know, this actually raises a really important point. So in the book, I call alchemy an aspirational science because it offered the same kind of opportunities to late medieval and early modern practitioners as perhaps winning the lottery would today. So you have restricted social mobility, but supposing that you found the philosopher's stone, well, at that point, everything changes because every prince would vie for your attention. If you could actually make limitless gold um, at a high rate of return, because, you know, alchemy is still expensive, but gold is, you know, even more expensive, um, you know, if if you were successful, you could actually change your social circumstances. And I think that is why so many alchemists did embrace the craft, because it's a game changer for them if they're successful. I mean, on every level, right, health, wealth, evidence of divine favor, um, evidence of your learning and wisdom and your right to stand in this genealogy of great English adepts. I mean, you just win across the board. Um, There were dangers as well. Um, the prince wouldn't necessarily ask nicely for you to share your knowledge. You might be kidnapped, imprisoned, tortured for your knowledge. And there were plenty of cautionary tales, including in English alchemical poetry, uh, with stories about people who had the knowledge, but who were then persecuted for it. Um, but you find this time and time again in patronage suits, in requests for licenses. You have these people who want to change their status. Uh, They might be gentlemen already, or they might be quite poor working people, but they believe that they have some sort of privileged access to alchemical knowledge, and that they're going to be able to leverage that with their superiors in order to improve their lot in life. Uh, And I think that's, you know, that's aspirational. And it's, 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 it's quite touching as well, and a little bit heartbreaking, because you know, being a 21st century scholar, I don't believe alchemical transmutation works. So I know that this aspiration was never fated to succeed, um, which you know, is too bad. Your book uh, really captures the imagination of the reader, really. So to transport yourself into into that uh, time period, to really try and place yourself in that in that era, which I think the book really did very well. Okay, so Professor Rampling, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can I ask, what are you working on now? Yes, well, p- pandemic uh, permitting, um, I'm, uh, I'm working on two more books, which are both about alchemical imagery. 
So the book I'm aiming to finish first is about a very beautiful collection of manuscripts called the Ripley Scrolls, which have some of the most spectacular visual imagery in the entire alchemical tradition. So one of my great regrets in the book was that because there was so much textual evidence to to sift through to try and draw out this English tradition, I wasn't really able to spend much time on the um, the illustrations and the, the diagrams that often accompany these manuscripts. So I'm hoping to put that right in another book um, on the English tradition of alchemical imagery. And what I'm trying to do alongside that is carry out some alchemical experiments myself. So what I'm interested in is finding out if there's a connection between the way in which alchemical processes were depicted in images and the sort of processes that you would observe if you were actually carrying out these, these, these practices in your workshop. Um, so that's, that, that's my plan, which will keep me busy for the next, in the next couple of years, I think. This sounds like a fascinating project. Wow. I hope so. <laughs> Doing your own experiments. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm very lucky that um, uh, Princeton has given me access to a laboratory. So I'm an affiliate faculty member at the um, Material Science Institute here, which um, means that once, once we're able to work together in classrooms again, whenever that is, um, I hope I'll be able to take my students back into the lab and we'll be able to try out some real medieval alchemical experiments and yeah, see how far we get. Looking forward to all those alchemical protocols. <laughs> Me too. So uh, where can our listeners find more information about you and uh, your book? Uh, probably the best place is my departmental web page. I actually don't have my own website at this time, but um, if you look uh, at Princeton's uh, History Department web page, um, I list uh, my current projects and also have uh, links to some of my publications. So if anyone were interested in following up some of the material that I talk about in the book, I'd suggest a good place to start would be my article from 2010, the catalogue of the Ripley Corpus. And there's a link to that on my web page. And there I basically go through about 45 different texts which are attributed to Ripley, not necessarily by him, but each entry includes a list of all the manuscripts so if anybody was interested in looking at an alchemical manuscript, you know, you could look and see if there's a library near you, um, maybe go and have a have a look uh, and see for yourself how easy or difficult it is to pass an alchemical text. And your book? Where can we get your book? Um, well, I would like to say in all good bookshops, but of course, it's hard for many of us to go to a physical bookshop right now. So um, <laughs> lots of online sites. I mean, uh, you can you can order the book directly from the press. Uh, it's it's on Amazon, it's on all the online sites, but I, I would, of course, urge any listeners to support their local independent bookseller um, and maybe put in an order. And I hope you enjoy it. That's lovely. All right. So thank you very much for joining me today. That was absolutely fascinating discussion. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure.